coming. Today it's a real pleasure for me to introduce Dick Combs. I've crossed paths with him off and on over the last 20 years or so. I first learned of him through Marshall Shulman. He had been a special assistant to Marshall Shulman, who as many of you know was a senior Soviet advisor to Secretary of State Cyrus Vance during the Carter administration. Dick received his Ph.D. at Berkeley. He was part of a core group of Foreign Service officers studying the Soviet Union through the end years of the Cold War and late 70s and through the 1980s. He retired from the Foreign Service after a very distinguished career and went to be the senior advisor on national security and foreign affairs to Sam Nunn. And he was there for nearly a decade in the Senate. I think that's where I ran into him last when he was, at the time, Senator Nunn was the chair of the Armed Services Committee. So it was a very important time at the end of the Cold War. He then retired from that and went to the Monterey Institute for International Studies at the Center for Nonproliferation Studies and was there until fairly recently when he decided to leave that and write a book called Inside the Soviet Alternative Universe, The Cold War's End and the Soviet Union's Fall Reappraised. And he's been working on this, he told me, for more than a decade. And Dick has been someone who I've always looked to inside the government as one of the guys who really understood the Soviet Union well. Thank you, Rick. And I always appreciated his analysis. So it's a real pleasure to welcome him to the Mershon Center. Dick? Thank you, Rick. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, and a special welcome to my former neighbors from Falls Church, Virginia, Dick and Judy Dennis, who lived next door to us for, what, 10, year, ten years or so. Had no idea they were here in the area. They live on Neal Street just down, down the road. Uh, Rick, let me thank you and uh, Sean Kay, from, uh, a, a fellow at the center from um, Ohio Wesleyan, for inviting me to come here. I enjoyed meeting with classes yesterday and uh, this morning and uh, enjoy meeting with you all here to, uh, at noon today. Thank you all for coming. Let me also thank, uh, Rick, your excellent staff, Beth, Melanie, Kathy, uh, and my buddy Andrew Rigney, who kindly helped me navigate uh, around the campus and back and forth from my hotel to here. Appreciate it very much. Uh, so it's been a, a very, very good stay for me. I hope for you as well. So what I want to do uh, for the first half of our time, about 40 minutes, I guess, uh, is describe uh, this book that I've written, which uh, pretty well um, summarizes my view of Soviet affairs, how to look at, how to understand what the Soviet leadership was up to, and in particular, how to understand why the Cold War ended and why the Soviet Union and the Soviet Empire fell the way they did. Uh, as you probably know, Rick Herman uh, has done a lot of work on this himself uh, through a series of conferences and uh, a book, which I found very helpful. But uh, I think my ideas are somewhat unique, and I hope you'll find them interesting. Take my watch off here so I can time it. By the way, if anybody – I'm not here to pitch books, but if anybody would like to uh, – let me just pass around a couple of these cards because it gives you the exact title of the book. And uh, the best deal, by the way, is to order one from Amazon.com. I found out that those people give you a third off 
I'm not real happy about that because I get a royalty on each uh, sale. But uh, nonetheless, it's amazing uh, what you can do, although you have to pay for shipping, but no tax. In one of his uh, many thought-provoking essays, evolutionary biologist Stephen Jay Gould uses the, th the geological theory of continental drift to illustrate the relationship between facts and theory in science. Gould points out that during the period when the notion of continental drift was almost universally rejected, the direct evidence to the contrary, was every bit as good as it is today. The pertinent facts were there for everyone to observe, but the absence of a plausible explanation for how continents could move, absent this, the idea of continental drift was rejected universally as absurd. Gould cites this episode to make the point that new facts collected in old ways under the guidance of old theories, rarely lead to any substantial revision of thought. Gould concludes that facts do not speak for themselves, but rather are interpreted in the light of theory. The main purpose of uh, my book, uh, Inside the Soviet Alternative Universe, is to examine available facts about the end of the Cold War and the Soviet Empire, and as uh, Rick can tell you, there are plenty of facts available. Uh, examine these in light of a new theory. In other words, uh, this book is not based on startling new evidence, although there are some, but on a new analytical framework for interpreting existing evidence. Like the geological evidence of continental drift, Facts about the last days of the Cold War and the Soviet Union, by and large, have been there, out there, for everyone to observe for a number of years. But these facts do not speak for themselves. And, in my opinion, analysis of them to date has failed to produce an, a compelling account of how and why these astounding historic events occurred. My approach isn't that sophisticated or complicated. It comes down to this. A correct understanding of the end of the Cold War and of the collapse of the Soviet Empire requires the analyst in the first instance to see these happenings in the perspective of the individual I believe was their prime instigator, namely Mikhail Gorbachev. Of course, other individuals were involved and other medium-term and longer-term causes were at play. But I contend that the proximate cause the thing immediately before these happenings, was Gorbachev's reform effort. And without understanding this cause and effect relationship, without getting the proximate cause right, I believe one cannot understand adequately the causal chain of events that led to the end of the Cold War, the fall of the empire, and of the Soviet Union itself. Further, I contend that Gorbachev's perspective resulted from a definable matrix of beliefs, a structured conception of governance that he had internalized during the course of his education and his lengthy professional career in the Soviet regime. In other words, as is the case for all of us, Gorbachev's understanding of reality was filtered and shaped by the frames of meaning 
that had become part of his mental makeup. This theme, the importance of ideas, of understanding decision-making in the first instance in terms of the cognitive psychology of key decision-makers, runs through the entire book. And that's why I titled it Inside the Soviet Alternative Universe. Now, let me give you a very quick uh, summary of the book's organization, which will indicate the architecture of my approach to these questions of the end of the Cold War and the fall of the empire. Part one of the book is a little unorthodox. It's entitled Reminiscence, and it sets the stage for describing the Soviet alternative universe as I came to understand it following academic study at Berkeley, uh, intensive Russian language study in the U.S. Army, and 10 years of diplomatic service behind the Iron Curtain, eight in the Soviet Union and another two in Sofia, Bulgaria. Part two, entitled Reflection, draws upon the understanding I try to convey in part one to outline or to suggest an analytic approach to Soviet decision-making. And part two then applies this approach to the evolution, analyzing the evolution of the Soviet conception of governance, as I call it, from Lenin and Stalin all the way through to Gorbachev. The purpose of these chapters in part two is to show exactly what Gorbachev attempted to change, what he attempted to restructure, to use his term, pitistroika in Russian means restructure, and what he stopped short of restructuring in the official conception of governance he inherited when he became the head of the Communist Party in 1985. And part three, the final part, is entitled Relevance, and it draws upon the findings of part two to answer three questions which I believe are central to today's U.S. foreign policy. First, how did the Cold War and the Soviet Union come to their respective ends? Well, you might ask, well, why should we care? Two decades later, it obviously happened, and it's a good thing. That's done. Let's move on. This issue is important, I think, because our understanding of the present and our assumptions about the future, particularly the near-term future, depend in large part upon our understanding of the recent past, particularly our understanding of major historical turning points like the Cold War's end and the Empire's fall. To give you a practical example, neoconservatives argued in the 1990s after these events that it all happened because of President Reagan's assertiveness and moral clarity, that Reagan, in effect, brought down the Soviet empire and caused the end of the Cold War, and therefore his approach, assertiveness, moral clarity, toughness, should be a model for present and future American foreign policy. This view contributed, I'm convinced, to the Bush administration's decision to invade Iraq in 2003, among other things. So it's not trivial. And the validity of the neocon argument about Reagan and the Cold War and the fall of the empire hinges on one's, assess on one's assessment of what actually happened. Why did the uh, empire fall and why? And how? So the answer to this first question about how this happened um, is directly relevant to U.S. foreign policy today as well as tomorrow, in my view. The second issue 
uh, that I address in Part 3 concerns the prospects for democracy and empire in today's Russia, the Russia of Putin and Medvedev. Well, now that we're the world's only superpower, unchallengeable virtually, at least militarily, don't know about economically, we'll see, uh, why should we be concerned about Russian policy today? Who cares uh, what these characters are up to? Well, the issue is important today because, as I'm sure you all re recognize, Russia undeniably is a major regional power, if, not, uh, if no longer a superpower, possessing, in addition to vast important energy resources, huge stockpiles of weapons of mass destruction, including hundreds of operational strategic nuclear weapons on hair-trigger alert, even now as we speak, plus an enormous inventory of conventional military equipment, not to mention biological agents, vast stockpiles of chemical agents, and the know-how and technology to make this horrible stuff. Therefore, we need to have a clear understanding, I think, of what has changed and what has not changed in post-Soviet Russia's domestic and foreign policies. For example, how should we assess the prospects for revival of empire or for the return of totalitarianism in today's Russia? Does Putin's invasion of Georgia, for example, or his clear assertion of domestic autocracy, unchallenged political power, do these things signal a return to the old Bolshevik ways of doing things? Or do, or do these unfortunate uh, actions stem from remnants of a fading Bolshevik past? And the third question I uh, pose in part three and try to answer is why the U.S. intelligence and policy communities, both, along with, I must say, the academic community as a whole, were unduly slow to anticipate the end of the Cold War and of the Soviet Union itself. So what's the relevance of this question 20 years after the fact? This is important, I believe, because our analysis of these historic shaping events was, and to this day remains, flawed. And if so... If this is the case, we need to identify the problem, the flaw, and take steps to overcome it. Formulating and conducting wise foreign policy in today's world, as I think we've seen over the past eight years or so, is difficult enough without being impeded by an unidentified and therefore unaddressed analytical shortcoming. So, anyway, that's the, the book's basic outline, Reminiscence, Reflection, and Relevance. <laughs> Now for an overview, quickly, of the book's um, basic findings, the substance. The first section consists of four chapters that highlight in chronological order um, my evolving understanding of the Soviet empire, the Soviet <coughs> regime. I try to convey, through personal experiences and observations, the nature of this alternative psychological universe as I came to understand it. Uh, there are four chapters there. Let me just give you one example to indicate the flavor of this part of the book. This example concerns the unforgettable train trip from Moscow to Helsinki, Finland. I don't know if anybody here uh, has... Ted, have you taken that trip? Did you take that trip during... Uh, you'll, I think you'll understand exactly what I have in mind. 
The most remarkable uh, part of this trip, this train trip from Moscow, began when about 7 a.m. in the morning, the train slowly comes to a stop at the Soviet border checkpoint at the very drab and uninteresting town of Vyberg, northwest of Leningrad. Passengers were not allowed to leave the train once once it had come to the stop at the border point. But the train, through the train windows, you could see uniformed young soldiers of the KGB border forces, some with guard dogs and all armed with automatic weapons, on both sides of the train, on a large platform built over the train, and in a huge cement pit under the train. The whole area was brightly lit with floodlights, top, bottom, and sides. And once the, the, came, the train came to a full stop, an armed, uniformed, expressionless, uncommunicative junior officer, usually a senior lieutenant or a captain, would come through each car, collect passports and visas, and then disappear with your passport and your visa. Next, teams of uh, consisting of two armed enlisted men with automatic uh, rifles, machine guns, uh, would come through and methodically search the interior of the, of the train, under the carpets, under the beds, in all of the nooks and crannies, except if you were a diplomat and had a diplomatic passport, they would not search your compartment. Then a customs official came through, and uh, diplomats, uh, again, because of our immunity, were not subject to customs inspection, but all other passengers were, And it was not unusual for Soviet passengers to be ordered off the train with all of their belongings, you know, their suitcases and and stuff, and taken somewhere into the depths of the train station for a thorough search of everything they had. Well, about uh, 45 minutes after the passports and visas were taken, the same officer reappeared and handed them back. And once all formalities were completed, usually in the search and the whole business, uh, usually in about an hour, the train slowly began to move through a cleared no-man's land and came to a halt at the Finnish side of the border. No soldiers were in evidence. A pleasant young man or woman from the Finnish border service in uniform, but certainly not armed, would come into each compartment, look at your passport, and immediately put a Finnish stamp on there, and that was the end of that formality. Then a pleasant customs official would come through and ask politely if you had anything to declare, and that was it. You were free to leave the train, and this was really the great part, and go to a trackside diner nearby where you found freshly brewed European coffee, virtually undiscoverable in the Soviet Union in those days, even in Moscow fresh pastries, fresh fruit, and dairy products, and an assortment of delicious open-faced sandwiches. I can see all of this in my mind's eye as I speak, and I bet you Ted can as well. And on the way, you you sort of marveled at the fact that the nearby buildings were well-maintained, cars were washed and seemed in good repair, and amazingly, the fence posts were all in straight lines everywhere. (laughs) This was a spiritual as well as physical passage from the Soviet world to the Western world, from Soviet civilization to Western civilization. 
This border crossing symbolized with unforgettable emotional impact. I don't know how it affected you, Ted, but it certainly affected all of us who had lived in Moscow for a long time. With, uh, we were just uh, impressed with the unique, sadly historically retarded nature of the Soviet al alternative universe that was brought home sort of metaphorically by this experience of crossing the border uh, by train. I, I should note that specialists in, in uh, Soviet and Russian studies who have had such experiences, like Ted Hoff here and, and I'm sure others in the room, uh, uh, certainly Rick, um, have question, may question the usefulness of this part of the book because they themselves have experienced this sort of thing. In fact, a couple already have who read uh, the manuscript early. Uh, but I wanted to make this book understandable to the general reader and particularly for students who have had no opportunity to experience the Soviet alternative universe at first hand. I also wanted to show how my understanding of the Soviet system developed, and I felt the description in these first four chapters would make a modest but I hope worthwhile contribution to the history of the Cold War as it was experienced by working-level diplomats, such as myself, inside the Soviet Empire. So that's part one. Uh, quickly on part two, reflection. <coughs> My experiences inside the Soviet Empire, and particularly during the last years of Brezhnev and the first years of Gorbachev, led me to conclude that if the Soviet regime were going to change, the change would almost certainly have to come from the party general secretary who had the stature and the authority comparable to that of the Pope in the Catholic Church. My understanding of the regime and its leadership also made clear to me that the first thing that would have to change, the, the existential thing, if you will, would have to be the, in the mindset, in the mentality of the General Secretary uh, regarding the structure and content of the Soviet regime. In other words, ideas would have to change before action uh, followed to reform or change. Uh, in this context, um, I let me get a little political science here for a minute. I, I chose not to use the traditional term ideology in this context. For me, uh, ideology has a kind of a disembodied, abstract, sort of dusty connotation. Moreover, the official Soviet conception of governance encompass really more than ideology as we usually think of it. The Soviet conception was an ideology in power involving not only concepts, Marxism, Leninism, uh, and all of that, historical materialism and so forth, but also derivative and instrumental beliefs, institutions, roles, and practices. And I wanted to capture this totality, not just the ideas themselves, the doctrine itself. Uh, in addition, controversy among Western scholars over the role of ideology uh, during the Soviet days in their decision-making was so heated during the Cold War that the very mention of the term uh, could, and in some cases still can, spark a, a, an emotional fuss. So I chose a more neutral term, although it's a kind of a mouthful, Soviet conception of governance. And uh, let me say that in doing this, I drew heavily on historian of science Thomas Kuhn, K-U-H-N, whom many of you know, uh, pioneered the concepts of scientific paradigm and paradigm shift. In my usage, the terms conception of governance and paradigm of governance are synonymous. 
In this regard, let me say, I experienced something of a mini-eureka moment in reading Kuhn. He famously uh, defined a scientific paradigm as a matrix of beliefs and practices that determine how a a given group of scientific practitioners understand and conduct their work. It is, in other words, what you have to learn in order to become a member of that scientific group. It is, in a way, the scientific group's conventional wisdom. With this definition in mind, it it dawned on me that from Lenin's day, the Soviet leadership could be considered as sharing a Kuhnian scientific paradigm. They could be considered as scientific practitioners within a frame of reference as Kuhn defined it for the natural sciences. What counted in Kuhn's thinking was not whether a given set of practitioners was engaged in genuine science, valid science, but the conviction of the practitioners themselves on the inside that they thought they were practicing real science. It was not, in other words, the quality of the science as assessed from the outside, but the conviction of the practitioners on the inside that they were practicing real science, as I've just said. And I cite evidence uh, in part two, some of it quite recent, uh, most of it, though, uh, out there for some years, that the top Soviet leaders from Stalin to Gorbachev, in fact, believed that their official conception of governance was scientific. They were not like the Wizard of Oz, cynically manipulating Marxism-Leninism from behind a thick curtain. You remember that where Dorothy pulls the curtain aside and here's this a uh, little fellow uh, trying to make magic. The, the Soviet leadership actually believed in the alchemy they claimed to be performing, in my view, although you can get an argument about this even today, but I think the evidence now is overwhelming. So seen in this light, the Soviet conception of governance can be regarded, I think, as a Kuhnian scientific paradigm, and Kuhn's brilliant analysis of how paradigms are formed, how they develop, and how they fall, how they break apart, is relevant to the Soviet case. In fact, I think very illuminating. Well, after explaining uh, this approach, part two discusses the formation and the implementation of the uh, official Soviet conception of governance or paradigm by Stalin. Uh, Talks about its relationship to the czarist conception before 1917 and its evolution from Stalin through Khrushchev and Brezhnev to Gorbachev. Let me take the... uh, very briefly, the Soviet conception out of the uh, recycled bin of history, so to speak, put it under a microfine glass, a magnifying glass, and take a brief look at its contents. Like most worldviews, the Soviet view consisted of three interconnected levels, core belief, derivative belief, and instrumental belief. And I'll just very quickly go over this, uh, but not linger on it uh, too, too long. Core belief was made up of Marxist-Leninist doctrine, essentially as as Stalin interpreted it, and this body of doctrine, considered to be pure science, was the basic energy source, metaphorically speaking, for the entire conceptual matrix. Like the, uh, whatever that was in uh, the spaceship in uh, Star Trek, it was the, uh, the stuff that made the machine go. Next was derivative belief, consisting of what the Soviets called programmatic analysis, which simply means applying core doctrine to analyzing the current historical period. 
where are we in the evolution of history as seen by Marxism, Leninism, and what are our main goals? Programmatic analysis. This analysis de de defined uh, essentially two things. The key external internal threats that the Soviet regime had to confront and cope with, namely threats stemming from the determination of the capitalist world, as they saw it, to weaken and, if possible, overthrow the Bolshevik regime. They also established the regime's fundamental goals beyond countering threats. These goals essentially were to build socialism and communism domestically while advancing the cause of world revolution internationally. And all Soviet leaders, uh, certainly general secretaries, there's some question about some leaders, um, but uh, all general secretaries believed that all of this was a scientific approach to policymaking and were guided by these, uh, this analysis of threats and goals. Finally, instrumental belief, which consisted of the institutions and practices that made up the interface between the Bolshevik leadership, Soviet society, and the external world created to achieve the missions revealed by programmatic analysis. And uh, you know about these, the party, the nomenclatura, the professional party, Aparachiki, who ran the system, the command economy, the enormous military-industrial complex, the KGB, unrestrained uh, party control and KGB control over the entire apparatus and society, propaganda, and so forth. And finally, the entire conception was conditioned, I think, by uh, three factors which amounted to uh, – Soviet, and actually czarist as well, political culture. Three conditioning factors about governance, attitudes about governance. As a matter of fact, I believe these endure in today's Russia, and I'll talk about that briefly in a minute. There are three, orthodoxy, autocracy, and nationality. If you've studied Russian history, you know this was the official ideology of Alexander the First, uh, Nicholas I, and endured uh, from him until Nicholas II was overthrown and shot in 1917, shot eventually. Orthodoxy meant there was one transcendental truth understood and interpreted by wise men at the commanding heights of the system. Autocracy obviously meant centralized rule with political power organized as a pyramid with one individual at the apex of the pyramid whose decisions were obligatory for everybody else beneath. Nationality had two meanings. The first idea was that the people uh, intuitively revere the leader. This, Nicholas I inculcated this idea that everybody loved the czar, the father czar in Moscow. And uh, the second um, meaning was that the Russian people, the Russian nation, had a messianic goal, a transcendent calling, well, that extended beyond national boundaries. And if you read uh, intellectual history of Russia from Nicholas uh, I onward, you can find plenty of evidence of this type of thinking. So to sum up, part two of the book dissects the Soviet conception of governance, revealing its core beliefs, derivative beliefs and instrumental beliefs, as well as its political culture, these three conditioning factors I've just described, orthodoxy, autocracy, and nationality. Part two then shows how this conception evolved 
and how Gorbachev eventually and, from his point of view, tragically failed to restructure it. Now, part three draws several lessons from this analysis, and let me give you a, a quick um, summary of them so we'll have plenty of time for discussion. First, what was the causal chain of events leading to the Cold War's end and the Empire's fall? In a nutshell, as I've foreshadowed here, the proximate cause of the Cold War's end was Gorbachev's so-called new political thinking, in quotes, new, as, as they called it, new political thinking about foreign affairs. And this amounted to a fundamental change in Soviet in traditional Soviet programmatic analysis, the application of doctrine to analysis of where, what's going on. From the outset of the Bolshevik rule, from Lenin's day and Stalin's day, core doctrine and derivative programmatic analysis insisted that international affairs were driven by class struggle between, uh, within capitalist countries, between the proletariat and the capitalists, among capitalist countries competing for limited markets overseas, and as well as between capitalist countries on the one hand and the Bolshevik regime on the other. So you had these three sets of class struggle within capitalist countries, among capitalist countries, and between capitalism and the Soviet Union. This last antagonism was defined as an objective fact and incompatibility that was fated to end with the triumph of the Soviet Union and its allies and the collapse and fall of world capitalism. And by the way, this is exactly what Nikita Khrushchev had in mind in his famous remark when he visited the United States in the late 1950s, you might remember, we will bury you. He didn't mean that uh, literally, but he meant that the wheel of history was fated to bring the downfall of the United States and capitalism and the triumph of socialism and communism as uh, practiced and sponsored by the Soviet Union. Some three decades later, Gorbachev in the 1980s declared that antagonistic class struggle had been overtaken by events. He started in 1986 with this line, and it became sort of a fixed part of his thinking in the latter part of 1987. We can talk about that process if you want later. Uh, it's the traditional role of class struggle as the key driver of international relations had been eclipsed, Gorbachev insisted, by globalization, by fundamental interests including peace, disarmament, health, hunger, environment, interests common to all of mankind, whether they were capitalist, socialist, or something else. There was, in other words, no longer an objective basis for hostility between capitalism and socialism between the United States and the Soviet Union. The true interests of mankind demanded cooperation in, re in place of confrontation, and, not less important, the true interests of the Soviet Union demanded a non-threatening international environment that would allow reduced military spending and thus foster very badly needed domestic reform. But the bottom line is that in Gorbachev's view, and in, in particularly that of some of his close advisors like Shevardnadze and Alexander Yakovlev, 
the Cold War had become a senseless, dangerous, costly, historical anachronism. Now, for his part, President Reagan essentially came to share Gorbachev's vision. Reagan's basic role in the Cold War's end, I think, I think is clear, was to encourage and facilitate Gorbachev's new political thinking, not to force the Soviet unions to its knees by tough policies and to submission to the United States. Quickly, what caused the Soviet Union's collapse? This occurred in part because of this new political thinking of Gorbachev's, in part because of the unintended consequences of his attempt to restructure the domestic aspects of the regime, of the paradigm. In addition to eliminating this capitalist threat, new political thinking advocated democracy and self-determination. Few people in the West, in fact, few people in Eastern Europe, believed Gorbachev was serious about this at first, but it turned out he was. Democracy and self-determination. So it happened that when the peoples of Eastern Europe and later of the republics of the Soviet Union itself asserted sovereignty, Gorbachev had no programmatic rationale for thwarting their ambitions, and he didn't, by and large. There were a few unfortunate instances of violence in the Baltic states, you might remember. But by and large, he did not deploy the Red Army to quash uh, these assertions of sovereignty, either in Eastern Europe or in the Soviet Union itself. This, he did not do this because he could not claim, be, thanks to his own reforms, as Khrushchev had done regarding the Soviet invasion of Hungary and Brezhnev had done regarding the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia and Afghanistan, that the international threat, the looming dire threat that was traditional in Soviet thinking until Gorbachev, he could not claim that this justified Soviet military coercion because he, in effect, defined it away. He said it no longer existed, by and large. Inside the Soviet Union, Gorbachev's attempts at reform of the official conception floundered in large part, I think, because he was unable psychologically, and we can talk about this uh, if you want to in a minute, he was unable to go all the way and admit to himself, or to anybody else for that matter, that the entire paradigm was outmoded and had to be totally junked. It couldn't be restructured. It was like a building that was infested by termites so badly that it just had to be torn down. And Gorbachev, for all of the good things he did, was unable psychologically to see this and to admit it. So what happened was the domestic situation spiraled downward as Gorbachev dismantled the command economy that had run the place pretty much economically, but he could find no effective economic mechanism to put in its place. Meanwhile, just as this was all coming unglued, world oil prices plummeted thanks to a Saudi decision to increase their production. And that happened just at a time of serious agricultural shortfalls in the Soviet Union requiring the import of grain and other foodstuffs, which put a terrible strain on Soviet hard currency earnings. As Gorbachev maneuvered between the conservative wing uh, and the reform wing of the Communist Party, he increasingly alienated both camps. The conservatives were convinced, correctly, as things turned out, that new political thinking, Pitistroika and Glasnost, were going too far and were threatening the existence of the regime itself. As I say, they turned out to be right. 
The reformers, headed by Yeltsin and others, uh, like-minded people, felt Gorbachev had become much too cautious and needed to go much further. One result of this dynamic was the August 1991 coup attempt against Gorbachev, and I know Rick was telling me he's actually interviewed some of the coup plotters uh, after the fact, um, which must have been fascinating. But anyway, uh, these guys who had been appointed, most of them, by Gorbachev uh, himself, decided that he had to be removed, had to be pushed aside before the whole thing spiraled out of control and the whole thing collapsed, which, of course, it did anyway. Uh, but when their attempt failed, their coup attempt failed in, what, three days or something like that, uh, the reformers headed by Boris Yeltsin seized the political initiative and gradually marginalized Gorbachev. The republics that had not already declared independence quickly did so, and by December of 1991, all of the republics, all 15 republics of the Soviet Union, including the Russian Republic, actually sometime earlier, had withdrawn from the USSR. The Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, together with its ruling Communist Party, ceased to exist. And Gorbachev was left with no choice but to resign as Soviet president, since there was nothing to preside over. And he'd already resigned as party general secretary shortly after the coup and retired to private life. Now, by this time, Ronald Reagan was out of office, of course. He had been replaced by the first George Bush in early 1989, before the Berlin Wall came down, much less before all of the events I've just described. However, uh, there's no doubt, in my mind anyhow, that the con confrontational policies and the economic warfare in particular that Reagan tried to wage and his colleagues tried to wage during his first term from 1980 through 1984 added marginally, I would say, to Gorbachev's economic woes and thus constricted the range of options he had available to him. As did the fall in oil prices and the agricultural situation. So these are objective factors that obviously have to be played an important role. But the underlying problem uh, I think, uh, well, let me say, I don't think that Reagan's policies were by any means the prime cause of the regime's, uh, the empire's fall. The underlying problem, I think, was that the Soviet conception of governance, this psychological paradigm, this matrix of concepts that Stalin essentially put together way back in the late 20s and early 30s, had become outmoded, ossified, and very resistant to change. Why? Because the nomenclatura, the party professionals who operated this system, developed a vested interest in protecting it because they were getting rich, fat, and happy within it. And uh, they were not about to change a game in which they were sure winners. So Gorbachev's strenuous efforts to restructure the conception and the regime it had generated caused increasing disaffection among the people, the conservatives, essentially, who adhered to this old way of thinking and wanted to preserve the system. But what happened was his, his Gorbachev's continuous efforts to change it destabilized it. Centripetal forces that acted to pull the system together, including party control, an adequate standard of living, the myth of a bright communist future, along with the myth of a looming danger from the West that I've already described, these sustaining forces were weakened, gradually but definitely. And at the same time, centrifugal forces, 
that were pushing the system apart, such as nationalism, an increasingly dysfunctional economy, popular disaffection with regime goals, disaffection of the conservatives that I've just mentioned, these destructive forces grew ever stronger. This in, an, uh, in a very short uh, way to describe it, but this process brought the entire system of ideas and institutions, the entire Soviet official paradigm, into a revolutionary mode, as Thomas Kuhn described paradigm development, a revolutionary mode from which it could not recover. Have I, I've already suggested Ronald Reagan's role was to facilitate and in some cases accelerate Gorbachev's domestic and foreign reforms. It was not to force Gorbachev, in my view, to move in directions he otherwise would not have taken. At the same time, President Reagan, in my opinion, deserves great credit for abandoning his long-held preconceptions about the evil empire and all the rest of it and coming to understand through just common sense and intelligence that Gorbachev was a, a genuine reformer and the characterization of the Soviet Union as evil empire no longer applied. The lesson here, I believe, for U.S. foreign policy is that while moral clarity, confrontation, and military force are necessary components of our foreign affairs toolbox, so is systematic understanding of alien outlooks. In the Cold War's termination and the Soviet Empire's fall, U.S. understanding proved in the end much more effective than moral clarity, confrontation, and military might. Rick, how are we doing on time? We need to wind up about 1 o'clock, so did you give adequate time? To, okay. Okay. Uh, now, about the second question regarding the future of democracy and empire in today's Russia, I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because I think it's fairly obvious, but uh, part three considers, as I've mentioned, what has changed and what has not changed in uh, the thinking of Soviet uh, Russian leaders today. Yeltsin and Putin and Medvedev as well, of course, totally abandoned the Marxist-Leninist doctrinal core and this business of programmatic analysis and all the rest of the official Soviet thinking gone. Yeltsin in particular was very contemptuous of this, although he himself had been an insider in the system, said it was all nonsense and should be totally trashed, and Putin and his colleagues uh, seem to agree with this. In fact, I'm sure they do. But Putin has established in their place, in the, in the place of the old Soviet thinking, a less complex but nonetheless important concept of, govern of governance, I, I believe. In Putin's view, Russia in the late 1980s and throughout the 1990s under Yeltsin was badly and almost fatally weakened, both domestically and internationally. So while Russia today faces no threat even remotely comparable to that that was conceived at least, as this dire threat from the capitalist world, in Putin's view, Russia must be restored to domestic prosperity and to its proper place, as he defines proper place, in the international order. Although, as I say, the official Soviet conception has been junked, remnants of the Soviet worldview, I believe, still linger on in the minds of the Putin leadership, including Putin himself, and much of the Russian electorate, in addition, who support Putin by about 80%. Eat your heart out, George W. Bush. 80% approval rating is uh, quite remarkable. 
For one thing, it's difficult, I think, for men and women of Putin's generation whose views mature, uh, matured during the Cold War, and of course, if, particularly if you served in the KGB, to now regard the United States and NATO as completely non-threatening and fully supportive of restoring Russia's power and prestige. Uh, it's very hard, and I think it's hard for some Americans, for that matter, to think of Russia today as totally benign of having put its communist past behind it totally. It's also difficult for the Putin generation and older generations to acknowledge the undemocratic, often brutal nature of, uh, the Soviet, of their Soviet past. At least as significant, I think, but more subtle, is that these conditioning factors I talked about, the political culture of Soviet Russia, and for that matter of, of Tsarist Russia, in, I, in my view, linger on in the thinking of a lot of uh, Russian general people, but certainly of Putin and his colleagues. Uh, let me just illustrate this a little bit. In keeping with the old traditions of orthodoxy, Putin favors programmatic analysis and regime goals that are set at the center without any participation from society or interest groups or anything else. He does it, thank you very much, and everybody else must accept what his views are, he and his colleagues. In addition, as you probably know, Russian history books are now once again being rewritten to reflect Putin's view of Russia's past. In keeping with the old traditions of autocracy, Putin has eliminated virtually all checks on his exercise of power, as you probably know, including all opposing political parties, they've been neutered and eliminated. They were never very strong, but, but Yeltsin at least allowed them to organize and meet and so forth and have access to the media, which they don't have now. Um, Parliament, which was a real thorn in the side of Boris Yeltsin, remember he actually used the Soviet military tanks against the Parliament uh, in, in one dramatic move when they refused to cooperate with him. The Parliament is now totally controlled by pro-Putin forces. His party, the party created to support him, now has an overwhelming majority in both houses of the party, and one of his close buddies from uh, St. Petersburg is the Speaker of the lower house, the Duma. The same is true for the judicial system, such as it is. Television, in particular, has been brought under total Putin control. You can't find any critical stuff. Uh, no Keith Olbermann uh, on, uh, uh, so on Russian television today. Uh, economic oligarchs who opposed, uh, in some cases, uh, Yeltsin and became very, very wealthy and powerful during the Yeltsin years have been pretty much neutralized, but some arrested, others exiled, and uh, others, uh, in effect, told they damn well better not meddle in politics or they're going to have the same fate as their colleagues in prison or abroad. Finally, Putin has developed a sort of neo-nationality, the third of the conditioning factors, with emphasis on national pride and positive aspects of Russia's Bolshevik past. For example, as you may have read, the melody of the old Soviet national anthem has been resuscitated. They wrote new words, but they're still singing the same song. Uh, the use of the red flag has been resuscitated for the, the Russian military. If you saw pictures of the tanks rolling into South Ossetia and Georgia, they were flying the red flag, the old Bolshevik red flag. Stalin has been partially rehabilitated, not totally, but partially in these history texts that have been rewritten. 
And Putin, as you probably know, famously called the breakup of the USSR the greatest geopolitical tragedy of the 20th century. Never mind the Holocaust and World War II and so forth. This was the greatest geopolitical tragedy of the 20th century. Uh, thus far, the one little bright spot here is that Putin's neo-nationality does not yet, and I hope never will, envision a transcendent international calling for Russia, like world revolution for the Bolsheviks, at least not beyond asserting Russia's, Russia's national interest in the so-called near abroad in the newly independent territories of the former Soviet Union, like Georgia and Ukraine. In short, the prospects for genuine democracy under Putin have dimmed and probably will depend above all by the eventual coming to power of a younger generation not so much under the influence of orthodoxy, autocracy, and nationality and the remnants of the old Bolshevik way of thinking about NATO and the United States. As for the likelihood of re reassertion of empire, I believe this should be seen as a function of Putin's goal of restoring what he regards as Russia's proper international status, and I don't think he foresees this as involving recapturing, in effect, uh, the countries of the old Soviet Union. So I don't think that was the, me the meaning of his invasion of Georgia. We can talk about that in a minute if you want. Uh, but I do think there's no doubt that his words and actions uh, make clear he believes Russia has legitimate national interests in the zone uh, along Russia's new western and southern international boundaries. And by the way, if that's slightly reminiscent of the Monroe, Monroe Doctrine, our Monroe Doctrine, it should be, because that's just actually exactly the same thing. Uh, very quickly, the third question. What was the flaw in our intelligence, in our analysis of the fall of the Soviet Union and the collapse uh, and the end of the Cold War? Uh, I think this was caused by a shortcoming generated by a largely subconscious aversion that we Americans have as a nation, I think, to giving careful attention to the outlooks, the thinking of others, of people overseas, particularly of our enemies. I don't want to go into a lot of detail about this. It's a fascinating topic to me. But I think, in effect, we have a, a mental blind spot comparable to the physical blind spot in our eyes um, where there's no vision, but our brain fills in that blind spot so that it seems to us that there's no hole there, but there actually is. There are no rods and cones in the back of your eye where the optic nerve goes back into the brain. But the brain uh, tricks us into thinking that we're seeing a, a whole picture when, in fact, we're not. Uh, I think the psychological blind spot operates in much, much the same way. It, it creates a flaw in the way we look at the world that we are not conscious of by and large. Why does this happen? Well, this is pretty speculative, but in, for my money, it's because there is something called the myth of America. There is an American civic religion that most all of us share. We learned it in school, in our history books. We learn it from reading and in, on television and all the rest of it. And it goes something like this that America is uniquely, has been uniquely blessed by God and uh, so that we enjoy the world's most advanced political system, 
Um, our, and we have a mission in the world that comes from on high, a providential mission. Now, it can be uh, affected in different ways, either by our own force of example at home or by active intervention abroad, spreading democracy, for example. So from the perspective of this American civic religion, this myth of America, and I don't mean to be deprecating about it or, or, or negative, it's just, I think, a fact, foreign views that are different from ours seem like they're ill-founded and therefore not worthy of our careful attention. And since, from our perspective, our foreign policy is assumed to be inherently good, capital G, the motivations of our enemies abroad uh, it follows, are evil, with a capital E. And who needs to spend time understanding evil? We have to confront it and defeat it. We don't need to understand it. So I believe this analytical blind spot, and I'm summarizing here pretty drastically because of time, this blind spot was the prime reason that the White House, the State Department, the intelligence community, and most of the academic community, with some notable exceptions, uh, actually all the way through, but particularly in the academic community, slighted or dismissed Gorbachev's thinking as unimportant and perhaps misleading. For example, the default view among CIA analysts during that time was that Gorbachev's new political thinking and perestroika were empty rhetoric, masking his desire to revitalize and make more competitive the Soviet superpower. If you think I'm exaggerating here, let me suggest you go to the CIA's website, CIA.gov, where you will find declassified the uh, intelligence report analysis and the estimates of the National Intelligence Council during this period. And I can assure you, you will find no analysis, virtually none, of what Gorbachev said he meant by new political thinking and pity striker. Take a look. In fact, if you look at the overall U.S. diplomatic record since World War II, you'll find numerous examples of this blind spot. I'm not going to tick them all off in the interest of time, but uh, let me cite two. One, uh, JFK's imperfect understanding of the conflict in Vietnam, and on this, read Robert, Robert McNamara's book written some three, or four, uh, three decades later, in which he himself admits that Kennedy and McNamara and all these bright people around uh, the Kennedy presidency totally misunderstood Vietnam because they were looking at it through the American lens and not understanding it from the Vietnamese, North Vietnamese point of view. I would say the same is true for the current administration's understanding of the psychology of international terrorists, but I don't want to uh, go on about that in any great length right now. Uh, quickly, what can we do about this problem? If you agree with me, there is a problem. Well, I think the first thing to do is become conscious of it. That is, our policy and intellectual intelligence communities should be aware, become aware of this problem, which is easier said than done. There are a number of ways it can be done. For one thing, uh, decisions in the executive branch in foreign policy and other things are taken usually by decision memoranda, which are written by the bureaucracy sent up the line, and what you do, you say, okay, this is the problem. Uh, these are our options for addressing the problem, and we recommend you, you, Mr. President or Mr. Secretary, act on option three. Very short, uh, terse uh, papers by and large, and Rick Herman and others here will remember these things, I'm sure. Uh, <coughs> what I would advocate 
uh, is that every action memorandum have an appendix, one page or maybe a little more, outlining what we know and what we don't know about the psychology, about the outlook of the people whose behavior we're trying to change, whether it's Osama bin Laden or the leadership in Pakistan or uh, Putin and the Georgian leadership or whoever it is. Because without addressing the psychological dimension, we're not going to be very effective, and I think we haven't been in many cases. Second, obviously, is analyst training. Analysts throughout the intelligence community, I believe, should be carefully trained in psychology, in cognitive psychology. What are our preconceptions that distort our understanding of events abroad? How do you get inside the head the mindset of a foreign leader and so forth? Uh, there's a lot written about this yeah, in cognitive science. Some of it is taught, you know, apparently, in CIA analyst training, which is about uh, four months' worth of training, uh, Anita Buckman tells me. Buckman. But uh, I think more needs to be done here. Uh, this is far from a trivial matter, uh, I must say. In today's Ameri interconnected world, where our power is still unmatched, but nonetheless very limited. Let me end by reading a, uh, a brief but eloquent quotation by George Kennan that sums up this problem and its context in larger uh, foreign policy. Here's what Kennan wrote. Smaller nations, weaker nations, nations less exposed by the very proportion of their physical weight in the world might be able to get away with exclusiveness and provincialism and an intellectual remoteness from the feelings and the preoccupations of mankind generally. Americans cannot. It will never be forgiven if we attempt to do it. If this is the path we go, we shall never succeed in projecting to our neighbors in this world, not even to the best of our friends and partners, those bridges that will have to be projected if the pounding, surging traffic of the future world is to be carried. Words to live by. Thank you very much. I'm sorry I went on too long here. Shall I just end, uh, recognize her? Yeah. Okay. Any questions, comments, dissents, whatever you'd like to talk about? I skimmed over a lot of uh, material here, I'm afraid. I don't know why. I guess I spoke too slowly or something, but it, my timing just didn't seem to work out 100%. Yes, sir. Critical language, as I am interested in something. Uh, uh, after the death of Stalin in 1953 and then the collapse of the Soviet Union, yeah. the Soviet Union made tremendous investment in foreign languages as producing, uh, providing analysts, uh, spies, uh, diplomats. Well, diplomats, yeah, yes. that's absolutely right. Also uh, yeah. I visited the Moscow University in 1973, and they were offering PhD degrees in languages such as. Punjabi, yeah. yeah. So what happened after the collapse of the Soviet Union to those programs? I, mean, Mike, I don't know. It's a good question. I, I guess uh, they withered somewhat because of lack of financing. You know, I mean, higher education, all education in Russia today, I think, is woefully underfunded compared to what it was in the Soviet days if they were interested in those programs. But you're right. Soviet diplomats and KGB agents beat us all to pieces in their knowledge of foreign languages. I thought what you were going to ask, and let me comment on, is the, the deficit that we face today in the United States regarding knowledge of foreign languages. 
You may have read that in our most important embassy in the world, in Baghdad, we have something like five officers who are fluent in Arabic out of a staff of probably five or six hundred people. That is ridiculous. How in the world can we effectively conduct our business in Iraq or any place else if we can't communicate with people in their own language? Why is that? Uh, well, I'm, I, I could give you a little sermon here, but the, the real reason is that the Congress refuses to fund the State Department at levels that will allow taking officers out of the assignment process and giving them training. The FBI does a much better job there. The Defense Department does a mess, not much better job with training people because they recognize how important it is. The State Department doesn't have the funds to do it. So we have a terrible deficit. Plus, there's a real fall off, I think, in interest in foreign languages among today's students. Not 100%, thank God, but still a serious problem. So enough on that. Yeah. Thank you. Sure. sure. A lot of speakers who mentioned Gorbachev and talk about Gorbachev, and I'm sure he was an amazing fellow. Um, but almost in a messianic, in a messianic sense, he, he talked about how he didn't send the Red Army and how he never sent the Red Army. Right. Except for, I think he said, one unfortunate incident. Well, it's act t two unfortunate incidents, actually. In the, in the Balkans. Yeah, and Lithuania and, uh, and, um, and Latvia. Latvia. Yeah. And, and it was at a time when we were distracted. And so um, he, he took over that. Didn't surrender. He didn't surrender all the, the, the theology and, and the superstructure, and he did try to revive it. And to Kupu, that I, I, hear, I heard you, Frankly Kupu, and I've heard other speakers, Kupu that action. How does one justify it if he wasn't committed to the core of this, this system? Yeah. To this rock system? Uh, well, the the plain fact is he wasn't committed to the core. If you read uh, his uh, speech to the last party congress that was held. His, in effect, this is what he said. For years, we have thought that our approach, our Marxist-Lenin approach to things, was scientific and gave all answers. Comrades, I've got big news for you. It does not. We have to open our minds to other thinking. Socialists, capitalists, whatever it is, we have to become part of the mainstream of history and sure, we can build socialism, as some European countries have tried to do, but not on uh, the Marxist-Leninist formula. He abandoned all of that. So it's not to the philosophy, then to the empire. Yeah, and, well, he allowed the empire to collapse. Well, but he didn't when he sent the tanks. And events may Where did he send tanks? Well, he sent them into Latvia. No, no, there, there were no tanks. There were bad people, KGB special forces. Gorbachev, to this day... Claims, I don't know whether it's true or not, uh, I think maybe it, it was, that this happened without his specific authorization. Uh, and those tanks, and uh, there weren't any tanks, but the troops were did not stay long. And the main thing is, when all of the other republics of the Soviet Union decided to withdraw, there were no troops, no coercion. Well, one, one can make the case, at that point, they were crippled down. And it was, they weren't, there wouldn't have been well, this is why the, the coup plotters tried to get rid of Gorbachev, because they recognized correctly that without the use of coercion, the whole damn thing would fall apart. And they, they criticized Gorbachev mercilessly for failing to use force, in East, first in Eastern Europe and then in, this, in uh, the Soviet Union. So uh, I, I, uh, 
I understand what you're saying, but I think you're, you're selling Gorbachev short. Perfect, he was not. But he was an incredible reformer under the circumstances. Ted? If I can take you back in time. I never heard uh, the Russian people of the 19th century or before described as having a uh, transcendent mission in the world. Can you elaborate on that? Because I know a lot of historians of Russian nationalism argue that there was no such thing as uh, Russian, Russian nationalism until very, very late in the dark. Yeah. Uh, the best source on this, uh, by the way, is uh, a Berkeley historian, I don't know if he's still alive, Nicholas Rizanovsky, you, you may be familiar with him, who wrote a book specifically on Russian nationality. Very, very good book. And uh, he points out, and I'm not an expert in, in ancient Russian history by any means, but he points out that some intellectuals around the Tsar thought that given what was happening in Western Europe, corruption, uh, bad things were going on, that Russia had this transcendent goal of providing a model, something like the shining city on the hill of John Winthrop, uh, and that there was some purity and, and marvelous quality to the Russian approach to governance and society that could serve as a model for Western Europe. So that's the, the first example that comes to mind. But to take a look at Rizanovsky, because he goes on about this at some length, and I frankly don't remember all the details now. But if I could go on, but I thought that argument was that, and that was the reason why Russia had to isolate itself from the degenerative forces of the West, that because it was so pure and special and unique, that, and that Russia couldn't be exported, that was impossible because we're talking about the Russian soul, the Russian earth, yeah. and it had to be kept pristine. Pristine, yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good point. But I think it's a little bit like John Winthrop talking about building a shining city on the hill. Winthrop wasn't advocating sending, uh, you know, missionaries abroad to spread the world. His, his line was, we have to build this perfect godly society which will serve as a symbol and an inspiration for the rest of the world. And I think that's what the Russian intellectuals had in mind. Not that they wanted to send people out to spread Russianness, but they thought by building this perfect Russian society they would provide an expiring example and therefore have this messianic goal. Well, but in your talk, you compared it to Bolshevism, which had a universalist pretension. There's no universalist pretension in the uh, Russian model. Uh, no, certainly not comparable to world revolution. It's, it's, I think it's comparable in function, but certainly not in content. That, that's right. That's a good point. Yes, sir. Why? I don't know. As uh, Sarah Palin or somebody would say, that's a hypothetical. I, uh, um, I don't know. Uh, Yeltsin's approval rating, you know, I don't even remember. Do you remember, Rick, what his approval rating was when it was more freewheeling in the 90s? I'm sure it wasn't 70 or 80 percent. In fact, uh, uh, pardon? Yeah, it was, per, it was higher than Gorbachev's, certainly. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Gorbachev wound up being despised, poor guy. Uh, and in 1990, 91, he switched places with Yeltsin in popularity. Yeltsin got 60 or 70 percent approval, and, uh, and poor old Gorbachev sunk down to 20 or 30. But um, So I don't know the answer to the question, but I do know that today, and there are pretty good uh, uh, polling organizations now in Russia, at least one assumes, uh, that showed that his popularity went up after the invasion of uh, Georgia, and it's, uh, it was at about 70%. It's now at 80 or higher. 
So that's why I said that I think not only Putin and his colleagues, but a lot of the, of the Russian population are still influenced by these conditioning factors. They accept autocracy. They accept the idea of orthodoxy in the sense that what we do should be conceived and worked out at the center, and maybe we can influence that a little bit, but that's not our role. That's their role. Uh, those historical influences are enduring, I think. Pardon? No, no. I mean, they have to get over that in order to become a free-willing, genuine democracy. And that's why I say I'm pessimistic about the prospects for that in the near term because these metal vestiges of the past are very stubborn. And um, you read uh, Russian analysts of their own political system, Lilia Shvetsova, who I think writes for the Washington Post and others, and they will say, the reason we don't have democracy is the average person doesn't conceive of himself or herself as having political autonomy, as being a sovereign political force that uh, affects the political system in any major way. It's just not there. That's one reason why the liberal parties failed. There were a bunch of them, you know, Yablaka um, and, uh, and uh, the Union of Right Forces and a bunch of other parties that tried to organize around the idea of a genuine democracy. They got no popular support. And, of course, they were also thwarted by Putin, not by, Gorbachev, by Yeltsin so much. So I think it's going to be a long time before we see a, quote, genuine democracy, unquote, there. Yes, sir. Being invaded? Yeah, uh, <clears throat> very, very s slim. I don't think Putin sees it in his interest or in Russia's interest to invade and conquer the near abroad, the former republics of the um, Soviet Union. Well, why? Because economically they're not going to add anything. Uh, if he invaded the countries of, uh, of uh, Central Asia, he would get more oil and gas supplies but they have quite a bit now, and he's controlling the oil and gas supplies from several Central Asian countries and trying to control more. Azerbaijan is the problem there, but I don't think he, in, he foresees invading. Uh, for one thing, the Soviet, uh, the Russian army is in really pathetic shape. I mean, they can beat the hell out of a country like Georgia, which is even much more pathetic. But uh, as you saw in their attempt to pacify Chechnya, it took them years and they had a hell of a time doing it. Uh, their, their military is very way underfunded, which is why we shouldn't be unduly alarmed when uh, Medvedev, as he said the other day, proclaimed that they're going to increase military spending by whatever it was, 50% or something. It's still about one-tenth of what we spend, and they've got a long, long way to go. So I don't think so. This is not to say that, as I tried to point out, Putin still thinks he's got legit, that Russia has legitimate national interests in the border areas, the former Soviet Union, much as we thought we had a legitimate national interest in Central and Latin America pursuant to the Monroe Doctrine. Same, same sort of approach. Uh, we can criticize it, and we should, and we should certainly criticize his invasion of Georgia. But at the same time, I think we need to understand, understand it, understand what his motives were. Yeah. No. 
No, I don't think so. Uh, I've talked about this in other classes, and we don't have time to go into it in great length, but I think uh, Gorbachev and uh, Putin and his colleagues harbor a lot of resentment against the United States and NATO for NATO expansion, for putting interceptors and radars in Eastern Europe, for bringing three Baltic states who used to be republics of the Soviet Union into NATO, uh, for recognizing Kosovo, a, a uh, internationally recognized constituent part of Serbia, Russia's close ally, for bombing Serbia against Russian objections, and certainly uh, they objected to our sort of semi-unilateral recognition of Kosovo. And they argue, well, hey, we, we recognize South Ossetia just like you recognize Kosovo, so shut up. I mean, if you can do it, why can't we do it? And, uh, you know, we can come back with arguments there, but from their point of view, uh, we're being unreasonable. There are lots of other reasons, uh, resentments that they have. So uh, there was all of this as background, and the precipitating factor, of course, was Saakashvili, the Georgian president's, A, proclaimed desire to join NATO, plus our uh, response, right on, we, you should join NATO, and so should Ukraine. And then, of course, Saakashvili invaded South Ossetia the night of uh, August 7th under very cloudy circumstances, but nonetheless, in invading, his armor rolled right through a battalion of Russian peacekeepers who were in South Ossetia, for better or worse, under a negotiated agreement with Georgia, negotiated by Sherbert Nazi. So that was the circumstance. I think this was an isolated incident uh, pursuant to Gorbachev's basic goal, which I tried to outline, of restoring the Soviet, uh, Russia to international prestige and status, including not being pushed around by any little Georgian, uh, even, if, it's back, even the, if the Georgians are backed by the United States. So... That, I think, is the explanation in a nutshell, not any reassertion of empire or desire to start the Cold War again or, or any of the rest of that. Can't, uh, you, can't you make a case? I've got to follow up. Can't you make a case that they took the bait and Condoleezza Rice told, told the Georgian leader not to take the bait, that there were a lot of incidents, a lot of shelling out of, out of, out of South Ossetia into Georgian territory, and it was, that those were the incidents were designed to get the Georgians to act. And once the Georgians act, then the, then the Yeah. No, no question about the latter, against our direct instructions. The problem is that the factual circumstances of the night of August 7th are still murky. The Georgians make one claim, the Russians make another claim, the South Ossetians make a third claim. Fortunately, there were some Western European observers stuck in South Ossetia when all of this happened, as you probably know. I think we have to wait and sort out exactly what the sequence of events was. Was Putin uh, and his colleagues aching to give Georgia and, in particular, Saakashvili a bloody nose? Absolutely. Where did, where did the tanks come from? You don't move that many tanks into Georgia unless they're prepositioned. Well, they had just conducted the military exercise just before. So uh, the tanks were there, but uh, again, until we have a clearer understanding of what the exact sequence of events and facts were, I think we need to reserve judgment a little bit. I'm not, I, I, I don't want to give Putin any benefit of the doubt here. What they did was aggression against a, a sovereign nation. No matter how you slice it, you can't excuse that, and it should be sanctioned, and I'm happy to see that the Western Europeans so far 
have agreed to a fairly minor but nonetheless telling sanction. Uh, Russia was pursuing uh, partnership negotiations with the European community, and uh, the Europeans so far have said, no, we're not going to do that because of your uh, outrageous behavior vis-a-vis -vis Georgia. How long that will last, I don't know. One more? Oh, I'll be around. We have 1.30, and that's when the next classes begin, and I think we'll okay. run out of everyone. I want to thank, take this chance to thank Dix for coming to Columbus. And thank you, Rick. Uh, it's been great. Yeah. Let me just thank you again for coming to class. Oh, thank you, nice Ted. I enjoyed it Look very much. Yeah, good students. Yeah.